Welcome back to Applied Latches. Thank you all for joining us. It's a beautiful Monday evening, 6.03 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Year of our Lord and Savior, Steve Irwin. Mm, rest in On- peace. Rest in peace to a king, an honorary Appalachian, because we said so. Let's. We've got a beautiful show to start with. We've got um, a list that is about the Mountain Valley Pipeline, courtesy of our friends at the Sierra Club, somewhat, uh, to be transparent. We've also got a great interview with um, Appalachian Gold, uh, two people who are involved in bringing agriculture and farming, specifically black farmers, to Appalachia. We're excited about that. We've got an under-the-radar that's really, really important, um, and you won't want to miss that. But first, for the intro, we have a governor's election. It's technically gubernatorial, but I think that word is so annoying, so I'm just going to say a a governor's election in Kentucky this year, because Mm -hmm. Kentucky has to be different. We love them for it. And uh, it's a re-election for Andy Bashir, the current incumbent Democratic governor, and the Republican field is pretty wild. So wild that this guy, I don't even know his background. Our friend Robert Connie of my old Kentucky podcast, check it out, could tell you a lot more about it, about this guy, but uh, Eric Dieters put out this list of terrible things that Joe Biden, Andy Bashir, and company, whoever that is, has done over the course of their tenure in government. And this list is fucking wild. Yeah, the, it, the, the title of the list is The Sick World of Joe Biden, Andy Bashir, and Company. Sick indeed. And, and honestly, if you want to read the first one, we're not going to do the whole list because it's 78 things long but they clearly didn't proofread it nor did they really even bother to think of of anything for it no mad respect to the comms person who took a look at this and said yep good to go (laughs) good to go baby the first can you read the first one for us i the first one and i i i'm going to read this verbatim word for word you shall do you shall do what we say and you shall believe what we tell you and Callie was not repeating herself for clarity. It says, you shall do, you shall do. Yeah. <laughs> we, we didn't even bother. Pro- I love that because it's like, you shall do twice. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, what are they even? What is he even saying with this? I guess that that our liberal agenda is being shoved down his throat and he doesn't like it. Well, you know, if I had a dollar for every time I shoved something down a Republican's throat, I'd have a lot of money, I guess. I don't know. According to this list, one of my favorite ones, this is number seven, more than one gender. Yeah. How dare they? More than one. More than one. one. I want to know what the one gender is for Eric Dieters. The, well, of course, it's it's male. I was going to say American. That's the, but one, that's the one true gender for these people. They don't believe women are people. That is true. And if you look back to the Bible, uh, if we, we want to reference the old <laughs> the old good book, there was one true gender. It was Adam. And he gave, what did he give, Callie? You remember, he gave a piece. His rib. His fucking rib. So that a woman. I think, I think God actually took it. So I don't know if he willingly so gave it. So it was non-consensual rib taking for Adam. <laughs> uh, I don't want to get into a lot of theological takes because I'm not qualified to do that. But I do believe there is more than one gender. I I, yeah. I would love to know from Eric Dieters who, what, what gender that is. If it's man, if it's America, if it's beast, I don't know. If it's person. I mean, because that would be pretty yeah. pr- progressive if he said there's only one gender and it's humans. Well... 
Yeah, he would be wrong. Still, he would be but wrong, but one one here I want to <laughs> he I want to ask you about. absolutely. <laughs> one here I want to ask you about that I've it's it's puzzled me since I've seen it. Number eighteen, okay. minor attracted person. So my question is: Is it someone who is attracted to a minor, or is it somebody who is minorly attracted? Minorly attracted, yeah. like a just sort of a hint of attraction, like a tipsy attraction to somebody. Um, I'm gonna guess it's it's a little bit of a like it's sort of like yeah they're 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 okay looking i'd i'd go up and talk to them at a bar what's what's funny is that as you go down this list you can tell their thought process and like where their train of thought is going because the next one is is grooming children and shut down schools and then it goes to shut down and then it goes through like all of the covid things mm-hmm. But um, another one of my favorites uh, that I actually this is what I quote tweeted on our on our account is number twenty nine science ignore. (laughs) I don't I truly don't know what is being communicated with that. Like, is he saying that Joe Biden and Andy Bashir are ignoring science or is he saying that like. Science is something you should ignore. I I don't don't know. know. My favorite one is. Remove product names. That's number six. Remove product. It, I know if you're listening to this and you're thinking, what the fuck are they talking about? We are thinking that as we are yeah. reading this. And this is this is not an easy list. This is a person who is a candidate for governor of Kentucky. Yeah. Like, and his yeah, his slogan is less government, more freedom. And if this is his idea of less government, by God, this is a disaster. 34 anti beef. You want to you want to take a stab at that? That's exactly where I was going. That's exactly where I was going. I don't know what that means. Um because we're I mean I I bought beef the other day. I can definitely still buy beef at the market. Yeah, it's um It's a pro beef podcast. Or is it like anti beefy dudes? Because if it was anti beefy dudes, then I would be on board that train. If this is That's a- my liberal agenda. Okay, I'm with you. If this is like a pro-lunk alarm type agenda, Planet Fitness, then I'm for it. But um, anti-beef, like, first of all, that would... Uh, co-host Emeritus, John Eisner, would, would have a, a problem with that. Yeah. I also, like, I don't... Joe Biden eats cheeseburgers. He, yeah. he just did it the other day. He got a burger from Ghost Burger in D.C. Yeah, I that so. one doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, I love that in in the actual the list that's called the sick world of Joe Biden, Joe Biden is nowhere near the top of the list. He is, no. in fact, number 37 on the list. No, in fact, uh, Kamala is even before him. Yeah. And Hunter Biden is 27. Right. A full 10 before his dad. Yeah, you know, Hunter, I mean, look, lots of dick pics, troublesome yeah. guy, but um, whatever. Who cares? Who gives a fuck? Here's what I will say. I love um, Demented President because you don't know if he's talking about Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack no Obama idea. even, who knows? George who knows? Bush, Millard Fillmore, could be any of them. Um, I love that number 66, obesity is good. It, yeah, that's on Joe Biden's agenda, I suppose. Yeah, it was right there on his page when he was running for president. Yeah. Um, I guess they're talking about body positivity, which like, okay, ask your wives how they feel about that. <laughs> like, God, God forbid. Yeah. yeah. Uh, music, number 70. You care mm-hmm. to opine what you think that might mean? Music? They hate Lizzo. 
They fucking hate Lizzo and they don't like her positive vibes. They also, number 69 is sports. Nice. They, so they, nice. <laughs> yeah, they, they also hate sports. We hate it as a, as a proud progressive fucking hate sports, you know? Yeah. And the last one on the list, I think we have to, we have to give a head nod to it is Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Um, this war on Christmas has been going for a long time. Yeah. I, I am a seasoned veteran. I've I've served at least four tours of duty at the War on Christmas. I've been on the front lines, in yeah. fact, since starting this show. Yeah, it's really I, sad. It's very sad. Uh, Danny and I are also we are we are we are veterans of the War on Christmas. Obviously, we celebrate Hanukkah as well. So that's very triggering for for many. That's kind of a Benedict Arnold situation there. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of got dual allegiances. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> and that would lead into anti-Semitism, which takes us back to number 70, music, Kanye West. But there we go. That's there, it. It all comes together. George Wrapped Soros, yada, yada, yada. You know, and I would just be remiss without saying number 75 just says opioids. And um, apparently he's blaming Joe Biden and Andy Bashir for opioids. Yeah. This list, man. Truly incredible. We'll link it in the show notes for you. Absolutely. And again, I said this before, but if this sounds really fucking confusing and you're thinking, why am I listening to this? This is very bizarre. That is our reaction to this because this is legitimately a list put out by a legitimate candidate for governor who is not polling great, but is not 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 in the the running. Yeah, it's. Woof. All right. Well, wild times, man. Kentucky, God bless you. Um, we have a lot to cover about Kentucky. This uh, we week, we do sure. have a great list this week. We do a list every week, a weekly list, and we do it on fun topics related to Appalachia. Sometimes they're not as fun. And I, I would guess that this list is not quite as fun as our, our list last week, which was about Mothman erotica. Uh, Callie, do you want to introduce this list? Because I know that you had a big part in it. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really important list. Um, we've been talking more about the Mountain Valley Pipeline on this show. We have been trying to raise your awareness of it and make sure that you're involved um, where you are in your in your communities. And so today we have partnered with the Sierra Club um, to to not only bring you some some more facts and updates about it, but to make sure that you read their recent blog that they published on the progress of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. That will also be in our show notes. Make sure you check it out um so you're getting it you're killing it i was gonna say i was like god she's she's a pro now <laughs> so we'll link it for you but to refresh your memory the mountain valley pipeline is 303 miles long and it is a fracked gas pipeline that is routed to go over steep slopes and through water resources in Virginia and West Virginia, all the way to the North Carolina border. Um, construction on the project began in 2018, but the project has had multiple authorizations vacated, resulting in really significant delays. So to this day, Major portions of the route have not been completed to full restoration. Federal land in the Jefferson National Forest has seen minimal activity from the project. And the scope of the Southgate extension we've we've talked about before on this show continues to be evaluated. Um, So the future of the pipeline is really uncertain. Um, And it also still has more than 400 water crossings left to complete. Um, It's 
So the Mountain Valley Pipeline project claims that it'll be ready in, in this this year, in 2023. Um, and the FERC, which is the Federal Energy and Regulatory Commission, just gave them four more years to complete it. So uh, let's take a quick look <laughs> at the reality that faces the pipeline. Um, so here's our top five updates since we've last given you some updates on the pipeline. Uh, number five, eight plus years of conflict. This, as with most pipelines, there have it's it's not a simple and quick process. Eight plus years of conflict. The project was announced more than eight years ago in the summer of 2014. So picture yourself wherever you were in the summer of 2014. I, for example, was working in Chicago then, and I was still in law school. It feels like a century ago. And construction began almost five years ago, and they still aren't even close to finishing it, despite what the company will tell you. They'll tell you that they're almost done with it. They're not. They're not. They're not. And, you know, this I recently was part of um, a a group of folks who were um, doing they've been pushing back on the pipeline for a really long time. And I was I was on this call with them and they were talking about their experiences over the last eight. I mean, now it's it's closer. It's summer of 2014. That's eight and a half years. And these people, some of these activists have been on the front lines of you know, antagonizing this pipeline for that long. And it's an exhausting fight. It's it is hard to be that dedicated to something for that long. And so like eight plus years has this this war has been raging. And here we are. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission just gave them four more years. And so we're staring down the barrel of four more years of conflict. It's just a continual presidential terms of conflict yeah and it's like i mean we saw this with um what was the what the dakota access pipeline earlier yeah not earlier this year but like a couple years ago and it's just a long drawn out process and they'll tell you there's so much urgency for this it's it's evident that there's not if it's taking them eight years to do this there's not a sense of urgency they just want to make money and they want to prolong a clean yeah, energy future because it, it affects their bottom line in yeah. a negative way. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it comes to fracked gas, because Republicans will say that that's clean LOL. in quotation marks. LOL. Number four on our list actually starts with the number four. It has been four plus years since construction began in 2018. And third and their 36 months where construction was actually permitted with 26 months of delay due to their own mess and haste. That was four, three and two years respectively for you all that like me are bad at math or wait. Fuck, I'm bad at math. because 26 was actually more than two years. So my bad. Well, it's two plus years. It's just absolutely crazy how much delay has gone into this. So there have only been 36 months of construction where like they were actually building it. Um, and because the delays happened because they were they had rushed and incomplete efforts to obtain the necessary permits. So during this time, the Mountain Valley Pipeline only had the full suite of permits required from February 2018 to July 2018, meaning that they have been without at least one permit since then. 
And not only have they rushed and the shoddy permitting process has like put a stall on the entire project, but the blueprint to construct over steep slopes further signals that this project has never been compatible with a healthy planet and livable communities. Just I when I heard those stats that like they had been delayed, like there's just been people waiting around for that long and they're still fighting for this. It's just. Oh my god. Well, and it shows bad faith too, right? If they're if they're going through this process trying to rush it without the actual permits. Like I know like government can be onerous and and tedious, but it kind of shows a lack of of good faith that yeah. you're rushing through this process trying to get it done because you just really want that gas to be throwing flowing through. It yeah. it's it's really troubling. And even more troubling, number three is four federal authorizations missing. The pipeline's incomplete status is further highlighted by the fact that the Mountain Valley Pipeline currently lacks authorization from four federal agencies. That's a that's not a small thing. Yeah, uh, we're talking about the U.S. Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And they're currently in litigation over the Clean Water Act authorization in Virginia and West Virginia. So overly litigious they like they're getting a lot of pushback and a lot of issues from so many different agencies so many different states it kind of feels like at the end of the day the only people that want this are the company that's building it and some of the politicians that they've lined their pockets with money yeah yeah i i mean i think you're totally right and when you look at those four agencies those are the basically the only four agencies that you need to be able to do this kind of work other than like appropriations and like you know some other like political stuff but if you are if you are pissing off those four agencies you're doing something wrong very wrong um which brings us to number two. Two state permits are still in litigation. So uh, this is what Chuck was talking about before. We're going to dive deeper on this. In recent years, permits authorizing the construction and operation of the Mountain Valley Pipeline have been found to be non-compliant with numerous federal environmental laws. Shocker there. Including the National Environmental Policy Act, the National Forest Management Act, the Mineral Leasing Act, the Endangered Species Act, and the Clean Water Act. These laws play a critical role in protecting our communities and our wildlife and our waterways. That's like, again, these are critical. And so to to have them not be able to offer permits in two different different states is wild yeah and f- you know the the first act you mentioned uh, for you enviro heads that's nipa um again if like an average citizen or a small business were to violate these acts they would have severe consequences no doubt but because this is a you know a fossil fuel company i'm assuming that some people are looking the other way i don't have yeah. hard evidence of that i'm just operating under assumptions but that tends to be the case i mean that's that's how things get done in this country honestly sadly um these are important things they may just seem like boring onerous federal laws but these are important things they're in place for a reason and um again this is a company that just seems like they want to ramrod this pipeline through so they can make a quick buck and cement their status because like the thing is, is like once you have a pipeline built and gas flowing through it, it's extremely hard to yeah. stop that from happening. 
So yeah. they know that and they're they're gunning for it. And that that's why like after eight years, they're still trying to do this because they know that ultimately it will be a payout to them. They would have stopped this a long time ago if they thought this was a fruitless effort. Make no mistake about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to take this last one? I guess so. And this kind of goes in line with what I mentioned before. So number one, 56% complete to full restoration. What that means is that the pipeline is only 56% complete. Now, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, and this is a big, big source of contention. Mountain Valley Pipeline claims that the project is 90% complete. But a pipeline pretty easy to tell at least to some extent if it's complete <laughs> or not it's a physical object and runs through multiple different um, plots of land it's only 56 percent complete um, they claim it's 90 90 percent complete but this percentage does not consider the most difficult or complex construction work nor does it incorporate the final stage of construction complete to full restoration that number is more like 56 percent in reality um and if you can imagine, the terrain in West Virginia and Virginia is certainly not flat. Um, this is like, it just it goes back to the whole like dishonest practices, the lack of good faith from this yeah. company that's putting in this pipeline. This is sort of the playbook for most fossil fuel companies. And it's a shame. It's shameful. And I, I hope and I believe that it's been in sh- it's been shown to be the case so far that residents of, of places like Virginia and West Virginia aren't going to stand for this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, this is absolutely a slap in the face to the communities that are impacted by the pipeline. Like saying that it's 90% complete is basically like saying we don't care about full restoration of the land that we destroy. Um, I mean, I don't know another way to read that. That's what I hear. Um, Yeah, so... Please keep updated with this. This is a huge issue that we are going to be bringing back again and again on this show because it is impacting so many of our listeners, so many people in our communities, um, and and so many people who are less advantaged. I mean, these people target, target communities of color, target poor communities, target BIPOC communities. It, it's it is really really upsetting to see what they are doing, and we're gonna we're gonna keep after them because fuck them. Fuck them indeed. And thank you to the Sierra Club for sponsoring this this list. This is an amazing list. We are so happy to have you as our partners. And again, their full blog will be linked in our show notes. And please follow their, join their mailing list, follow their accounts. Sierra Club is the leading voice for uh, environmental work in the United States. And we hope that you take full advantage of all the resources that they offer. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, with that, let's let's get in some quick announcements. We've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash appodlatchy. You can go there. You can join for as little as a dollar a month and get access to weekly exclusives, fun live events, a lot more than just that. And you can just be a part of this really awesome community. And most importantly to us is you can help uh, finance this show. Like we, we, we are not independently wealthy. I know that may come as a shock to all of you, but we're <gasps> not. I know. See? gasping for air we're not independently wealthy um you know we we have to finance this from out of our pockets if we didn't have patreon and patreon's been a huge blessing for this show because it's allowed us to buy things like these really fancy mics that makes us sound a lot better so we have three new patreon members and one of the best benefits of joining is you get a custom limerick 
from Callie Pruitt herself. We've got three new people. Callie, go for it. Awesome. Uh, This first name, I love it. This is for Jinx. That is such a cool name. Um, Congratulations on winning the cool name contest. So... Pick up a cup for Jinx. Absolutely nothing about her stinks. She's a perfect new friend, a gal right on trend. She's a sunset of purples and pinks. Ooh. That's a that's a dope name and a fun one to write a poem about. It was. It was very fun. All right, next we have Abby. Raise your glass to Abby. Do it now and don't be so crabby. From West Virginia with love, what Valentine dreams are made of. This February, we're not feeling too shabby. Holla. I love that. Love that. Abby, great, great Patreon member. Great fan of the show. Big welcome fan. to, yes, welcome, Abby. We're so happy to have you. And last but certainly not least, we have Nate. Three cheers for our new friend, friend Nate. We casted a line and he took our bait. An Ohio king, the best on the scene. We're so lucky to have him in our fate. Beautiful, poetic, powerful. You are That's all welcome. I have to say. <laughs> You're welcome. If you want a custom limerick, get the fuck on it and join this Patreon. Uh, well, thank you all to Jinx, Abby, and Nate for joining our Patreon. And again, you can join at patreon.com slash iPodLatcha. And uh, we love you. We appreciate you. And we look forward to uh, having you on our team. Um, do you want to do a bookshelf promo real quick? Uh, Yeah. So um, I'm really excited to talk about our our partnership with Read Appalachia. Um, This is a book club. If you have not heard about it yet, it's called Appalachian Bookshelf. We are currently in week four. um, So you can still catch up. Definitely, definitely can still catch up week four of 11 um, of reading Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead. Really a fabulous, fascinating read. Um, the regional conversation on it is going to be just stellar. Um, I, I have so many thoughts on it. I mean, I've already finished it. But uh, Kendra and I have been putting together um, reading guides and reading questions to help you engage with your neighbors on it and to share your opinion. If you would like to join Read Apple, or sorry, if you would like to join Appalachian Bookshelf, then we will put a link to join in the show notes, but also follow along on our Instagram. We are operating a giveaway right now. We are giving away five copies of this book to people who join our giveaway. Go find that in our profile, share it away, and uh, enter to win. We would love to have you on the Appalachian Bookshelf team. Absolutely. Please, please, please come and join. Well, let's get into our interview today. It's a pretty great one. I'm very excited about it. We have two individuals who are in this interview, Josh McGee and Jason Tart. Josh is the co-owner of Y'all Company, um, a sauce company that's based out of um, Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem, yeah. yeah. Um, and I actually just ordered some of their sauces. They came in the mail when I was in Florida, so I'm excited to try them tonight. Ooh. And I got some of the the um, Mama's Meat Sauce from Appalachian Gold. And Jason Tart, uh, who is the farmer and owner of TNT Organics in McDowell County, West Virginia, and his family farm where ancestral mountain farming techniques drive economic development and build Appalachia's sustainable future... 
Born out of a fourfold partnership for a social enterprise in the region, Appalachian Gold, which is their company, will release a series of regional food products, and they've already started to put some out. Um, very excited about this. We talked to Jason and Josh about farming and agriculture in Appalachian, how they are trying to make that a big part of the economy in Appalachia, uh, particularly focusing on black farming. And that's a really big part of this. And I think, um, you know, when we talk about the economy in Appalachian, especially West Virginia, oftentimes people talk about coal, and that, that was a big part of the economy, and it's starting to wane now, as many of you know. And a lot of the conversation has shifted to what is going to be the economic driver of places like West Virginia and what's going to happen with these coal communities in southern West Virginia, like places in McDowell County. Jason especially is working to try to build a sustainable mountain farming community and economy and particularly focused on black Appalachian farmers. I, this is a great conversation. I think you all are going to love it. Callie, I would love love to hear from you about what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, this this interview, I think, was so fascinating because the mission is different than a lot of the other farming topics that we've talked about on the show. Um, I think this is very people centric and I love that. I think that that's really a, a fascinating way to go about this, where you put people first and then you you start doing the hard work of the, the labor that's needed. Um, Jason, just awesome, awesome person. Really, really cool um, goals for Appalachian gold. And I love the approach they're taking. This is not big farming. This is not like fields of corn forever. Fuck Monsanto. Right. This is like local honeys and, you know, different kinds of syrups and small batch uh, farming thing. You know, this is this is really interesting and and delicate work. Um, Josh's perspective also just... (laughs) What an awesome, very, very nice guy. Yeah. Uh, Josh is a fabulous person. Um, and and his support of Appalachian Gold in this mission is really, it's, it's not only inspiring, but it also makes me believe in so much of the work that many organizations, including us, are doing to bring more attention to this region and to bring more attention to the diversity and beauty that lives in our region. And I just really liked Josh's perspective even though he's not living in Appalachia right now, he's still supporting Appalachians, which is so, so fucking cool. Absolutely. I love it. I truly do. And I think like this is something that's really unique and something that a lot of people aren't talking about. So I'm glad that we had them on because we do have to be thinking about how do we revolutionize this economy to get away from fossil fuels? And and this type of like mountain farming model, which they talk more about in the interview, is something that's really innovative, unique, and something that could really be sustainable for a long time in Appalachia and a place where there's fertile ground for it. So I'm excited for y'all to listen to it and let's get right into it. We can we can go ahead and get started. By the way, so my name is Chuck Cora. Uh, I think it says that on my thing there. Hopefully, um, really excited to talk to you all. Um, we can make this fairly informal. I know that we've got a, a, a bunch of questions to ask you, and I appreciate you all sending the links yesterday. That was super helpful. Um, 
I would love to just start by telling us a little bit about yourselves, um, how you got started in agriculture, particularly with Jason, how you got started farming in West Virginia. Yeah, um, you know, my background is definitely not in agriculture. I, I, um, I'm from West Virginia, left here many years ago, joining the military. Uh, after the military, I went into DOD contracting. So that's kind of where I made my living. Um, raised my family in Colorado. Um, and then my mom moved to Colorado, but we ended up having to move her back to West Virginia. She became ill and with the illness that she was dealing with, uh, we had to get her out of the altitude out of Colorado. So came back to West Virginia, kind of got set up. And, and, you know, obviously there's no DOD uh, contracting work in this area. So I was kind of trying to figure out what am I going to do and uh, got into some substitute teaching, trying to figure out if I wanted to become a teacher or not. That didn't work out very well for me. And uh, joined an organization uh, that's called Veterans to Agriculture. And really, that's kind of where it started, I guess, around 2012. Um, but that was re a really uphill battle because there's really no agriculture here. Um, so when you when I got into it, there was no really there was no clear path to what agriculture looked like in Appalachia. They were kind of trying to apply a traditional model. And we found out quickly that this is not Kansas. So. Um, a lot of our work has been centered around kind of identifying what does agriculture look like in this part of the country. Uh, and, and so that's primarily what our work has been centered around is just really building um, education and awareness around what what is agriculture in Appalachia? What do we have to offer the country? And uh, so we've, we've been very busy developing what we're calling mount, a mountain farming model. Uh, and, and that is very different from your traditional agriculture. So that's kind of, of you know, so we've been at this for, for roughly 10 years or so. And it's really starting to, to gain momentum. People are starting to take notice. There are a lot of very great opportunities here in terms of what we can produce, what we could be good at. Uh, so most of our work has kind of been centered around, you know, building education and awareness and really getting people engaged. It's a very poor community. Obviously the, the mining industry and other extractive industries have pretty much, uh, you know, been prevalent here in terms of economy. And now that that's, that's not performing well anymore, we're trying to define what our path forward looks like and, and uh, it's being received very well. Uh, so that's kind of what we've been up to for the last 10 years or so. That's fascinating. And and it reminds me of, a, uh, I guess it maybe isn't necessarily recent anymore, but last year we did, um, I did a site visit and we did, had a conversation with Sprouting Farms in West Virginia. And they're working on doing kind of a mountain model as well and, and doing these kind of um, incubator farms. And I'm imagining nothing like that existed when you started. And, uh, you know, there wasn't anyone to help a fledgling farmer get off you know get off the ground and so um i i would love to hear you know it, it what the experience was like what is appalachian gold and kind of what led to its creation 
Yeah, the experience was very frustrating uh, initially because we were being told things that just didn't make sense. Although, and I, I didn't know farming. I didn't know a thing about agriculture. I came from behind the desk. Um, so, but you know, you do what you're told. You, you know, we're trying to figure it out. I'm buying land. I'm doing all this hard work. Uh, my partner understood farming, but again. You know, we were we were trying to fit into a traditional or conventional ag model, the big ag model, and no one was really talking about what does farming look like in Appalachia. Um, so, I, I guess probably four to five years into it, we kind of got to the point where we're like, this isn't working, so we need to figure out our way forward. And he had started to really talk about what it should look like, and he's he's an older gentleman. He's since passed away. Um, but he, Sky Edwards is his name. And he was kind of like, for me, um, the person that really kind of exposed me to what, what farming or agriculture should look like in, in this part of the country. And so we began to really focus on tree crops like fruit, um, medicinal herbs, mushrooms, um, you know, a lot of, of what these mountains have to offer, maple syrup, honey, these are big, big dollar items that we're not talking about. You know, no one was aware that, you know, we could be very good at this. We could produce a lot of this and really change, uh, you know, the, the, the economic situation in places like McDowell County, West Virginia. Uh, so we really got busy developing the place that I have here and two years ago we decided we're going to turn this place into a training and demonstration facility kind of a piloting uh you know model to show people in the surrounding areas this is what we're doing we started to do some workforce training and development and and through some nonprofit organizations that I co-founded we started to to pay people to come out and actually train and just give that exposure to what agriculture is and in terms of Appalachian gold we you know we're sitting on a gold mine here there is no reason whatsoever for this part of the country to be as poor uh, as it is and, and just a desperate situation here so Appalachian gold was was brought about to showcase what Appalachia has to offer in terms of of agriculture agribusiness and and you know we feel like it's a good thing we feel like the community is responding very well to it. Um, a lot of work to be done yet. And being able to partner with Josh and y'all company was huge because that showed folks here that you know, there's another gear to this too. When you start talking about value chain creation and those types of things, things that people around here don't really talk much about. Um, so Appalachian gold is kind of like the, the, the standard now for how do you, how you approach agriculture in this area. Still got a lot of work to do, but, it's working out very well and people are definitely starting to take notice. We've had through the train here and, and have had about seven or eight new farmers to sign on with the USDA and really get serious about this. So it's starting to get for sure. Yeah. Let's toss it over to Josh. Josh, how did, how did, what's your role in this? How did you get involved and, and just what's your story? Yeah, thanks, Callie. I really appreciate that. So um, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. So, you know, the, that area of the mountains has always been pure to my heart. 
Um, you know, even having, you know, my homage to Queen Dolly Parton on how you actually are a good human being and how, you know, you can really do some good in the world from where you come from. Um, so um, I've been working in the restaurant industry pretty much since I was 18 years old. Um, I, I've worked as a chef. And so I understand the, the value of what produce or your ingredients and how much you can extract that more than anything. So um, when I, uh, my wife and I got married, I moved up to Louisville, Kentucky. Um, she is actually a pastor in the Baptist church, but not the Southern Baptist church because they don't allow women to preach. Uh, so I'm a preacher's wife by heart. And so uh, she feeds the souls and I feed the bellies has how we kind of encompass, you know, all this together. Um, so, you know, to keep my culinary, you know, roots and to really dig into where actual food comes from, um, I really started digging into Southern cooking and the importance of how it actually is the most authentic American cuisine there is. And the cool thing about it is, is there's so much influence um, through foodways and, and through stories. I mean, the origin of Southern food comes from West Africa. And then now you see how important it is in changing on how food is presented to people. So for instance, like in Houston, Texas has a huge Vietnamese population. So the using lemongrass and ginger is kind of just common in your typical crawfish boils that you would not see, you know, you would see differently in Louisiana or whatnot. And so like, what we were trying to do is with the company that I started, which is called Y'all Company. So, you know, going back a little bit more in my nerdy history way that y'all is actually the only inclusive word in the English language. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't, it's not a you guys or yuns. Um, so really you think of this kind of white trash, lazy term that most people think of is actually embracing a lot of things. And so when we started this, you know, we really wanted to kind of resurrect different um, condiments and sauces around the South. So we started doing some more and we found, you know, living in Louisville, there was a sauce called Henry Bain sauce. Um, we did uh, really resurrect what that story is. We have all the stories on our, our website, so I won't go too much into that. Um, I grew up in East Tennessee eating something called Jezebel sauce, which is kind of a sweet and spicy sauce. And then uh, Mississippi Comeback, which is kind of getting a resurrection um, across the South more than anything. So so we had these shelf-stable products. Um, we've been in business for five years. And really, we were thinking about, like, how can we actually use our the raw supplies, the ingredients, and how can that actually expand a little bit more into what we're doing to tell stories? So... Um, Jason and I are, we, we met through, uh, a nonprofit called together for hope, which is part of our cooperative Baptist fellowship. They've actually splintered off on their own 501 C3. And so what they do is they bring awareness of, 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 I think it's 325 counties of rural poverty. And mostly it's in the Rio Grande, the black belt, um, Appalachia and, uh, a few native American reservations as well. Um, and so our idea was like Appalachia is, 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 you know, in my backyard, I live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina now. So I've really kind of, you know, all that kind of area like that. So, um, 
my business partner, Mark, and I actually drove up to Bluefield, West Virginia, which is about two hours north. We were looking at a facility to see how we could manufacture our sauce and to create jobs in areas um, that would, you know, change people's lives. And through that meeting, we met uh, Jason and our business part, other business partner, Amelia Bandy. Um, and Jason actually took us to his demo farm. And I mean, I was just amazed by just the work that was going on there. I mean, it's not a huge plot of land like you would think. I mean, it's how many square feet is it, Jason? Sorry, it's about three to four acres. Yeah. So you're not looking at these like big corporate farms or whatever like that. You know, wind tunnels that he has. I mean, we were eating tomatoes that were from last season right off the grounds. I mean, we came up there in fall and just the vastness of, of it. So we started talking and figuring out how can farmers in Appalachia keep a sustainable living through agriculture. So a lot of people are getting, you know, land inherited from uh, from family members who died. And the easiest way they can do this is just sell it off to the coal company and, and be done with it. But like, how can they keep like that legacy going? And with Jason's techniques and uh, Amelia helping with workforce, um, and then using um, y'all companies uh, network that we have, our sauces are sold in 18 states and three countries. So again, that gives people the opportunity to where agriculture cannot only be solved by the farmer's market model. So you got to think that a farmer would gather what they want to sell, mostly in areas of rural, rural, rural areas. You're driving to two and a half hours. You're losing money on gas right there. And then anything that you don't sell, you have to either bring it back or discard it. So if we can actually take those things that don't sell and actually give a premium product that we they would get at a farmer's market for cost-wise, convert those into shelf-stable products such as sauces, seasonings, uh, infused oils, like ramps, for instance. Ramp season's only about two weeks, so you can really infuse those into oil to give longevity. Um, as Jason said, honey is probably one of the biggest, biggest producing things in that county of McDowell County, West Virginia. Um, so this is where Appalachian Gold really started, really seeing how you can create economic stability in areas um, and, and to collect the farming assets of value-added products throughout Appalachia to keep sustainable um you know, uh, money going to those places. So we're starting right now in McDowell, hoping to really launch honey um, this year. And it won't be just like, you know, we'll have just typical honeys, but with my food background and the food trends, converting them into hot honeys, whiskey cured honeys, head honeys that have mushrooms within it for antioxidants and so forth, and really kind of get into those creative aspects. Um, you know, we really want to eventually build a facility um, in McDowell County, West Virginia. Um, just to kind of give you an idea of the area, um, the median income is usually about $16,000 per year. Um, as Jason said, they've been on boil water alerts for well over a decade now. Um, there's shortages of meat in that area. So just think if we could get um, food manufacturing in an area like that, and could just even double their income to $32,000 a year. Just think how that would change just people's lives. And trying to see how micro-businesses can really uh, generate the area. So, for instance, it is a food desert. So, if there is 
you know, a little bit more economic, you have the justification to get better quality uh, uh, grocery stores and pharmacies and, and whatnot. So we really want this not only to be just about um, growing cool things in Appalachia, but we really want to change people's lives through this business. That, that's fascinating. And I, I really love the community focus of this because I think as, you know, as we all know, larger corporations, especially the extraction industry, have just wreaked havoc on places like West Virginia for, for years and, and taken a lot of valuable resources. And this is almost a way of reclaiming that land for community-based agriculture, which I think is a really brilliant idea. And for places like McDowell County and Mingo County being another one that's uh, my sister lived there for a number of years teaching, there are places where I think a lot of people have written them off. And there's everybody acknowledges that there's a huge economic problem there, especially with coal uh, being on the downturn, but not a lot of, of solutions to it. And this sounds like a really, really viable opportunity for that. So I love to hear that. Um, I have a question uh, for Jason. I was reading one of the articles you all sent. Um, you mentioned that one of your goals uh, was to attract other black people to see West Virginia and particularly McDowell County as a viable place to build a life. I'm kind of curious, how do you go about doing that? I think it's important for people to understand what is here. Uh, and that's the beauty of Appalachian Gold is to demonstrate to people, you know, there are opportunities here. I think there's a migration happening in the country now away from the West and the North into the Southeast as it is. But most of the time people don't consider this part of the country. When you think of central Appalachia, especially uh, there aren't many very, there aren't very many positive, you know, things that people are saying about this part of the country. So really it's kind of like 1900s when the coal mining boom happened, you had, huge numbers of African-Americans moving out of places like Alabama and, and Louisiana coming here um, for the same reason. So the cost of living here is very low. The cost of land here, comparatively speaking, uh, it's a perfect situation. So developing training, developing demonstration and showing people what the potential of the place is, is very important. Um, you have a, the majority of African-Americans live below poverty and we're kind of concentrated in these large urban centers um, and, and they're same problems. You know, you have food desert communities, you have low income, poor housing, you name it, those problems are, are there. So really to kind of make that connection between urban and rural to see what opportunities exist there, but also to let people know this place is right for the taking, honestly. Um, and if you have a solid business plan or you're connected with the right people, you could definitely come here and do very well. Uh, so just trying to, to get that information out and express what those opportunities are. And agriculture is just one of the opportunities. You look at tourism, uh, which is very much alive here and growing. Um, and so many other areas that could be taken advantage of. It's just not the awareness is just not there. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to do now and reconnect with folks that used to live here. I mean, once the coal mining industry started to really decline in the 80s, um, people just left. Uh, D.C., Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, folks from this area are all over the country simply because the ability to make a decent living was not here. So, you know, agriculture, I think, could be a foundational piece of reestablishing that 
Um, but again, it's just very difficult to to get the awareness out to people. You know, when we say underserved community, it's not really talking about any particular demographic here. This entire community is underserved. Um, so it's important to to really frame this correctly, get the right partners involved, um, Together for Hope, the USDA, all these organizations are really working hard to help us build this. Um, and now we have to figure out a way to get this in front of people so that people understand, you know, there are opportunities here, big opportunities. It's just not well known. And again, when people think about this part of the country, um, you know, it's not a place that most people want to come and live. And I'll add a couple more things to that, too, is that, you know, looking at the vastness of abandoned buildings. So, I mean, you can really get more blue collar jobs back in these areas just for for warehousing distribution. Um, West Virginia sits right in the middle between the northeast and the southeast. So just think of the logistics opportunity there. Like Jason and I were talking like, you know, apples grow very well on the hillside. So how can we even, you know, with the spring of, of, of cider breweries and whatnot, where you're not transporting stuff from Washington state and how to really get it. I mean, like just looking at the, you know, the, 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 the sense to it, like, I mean, it, it can be a, a, an opportunity for people to really start back blue collar businesses and, and be very um, profitable and have a good, good way of life and living. Um, you know, that's that's the amazing thing about that. And even like on the land that's been extracted. I mean, there are certain things that you can grow. I think Jason was telling me lavender grows very, very well on 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 coal, like land that coal has depleted. So, again, there's still opportunity, even when this when people think that, um, you know, West Virginia is just a desolate land and how it's been portrayed. I mean, people still think it's like from the 1950s. And that's not the case. Yeah, there's a, a great line. I, I don't remember who say who said it, um, but that Appalachia is one of the few places in the country that is a land lost in time to the rest of the country. Um, and they don't see us as a as a, a place in the modern world. Um, but I did want to ask, I, I love I love talking about bringing people to our region. I think that that is so important. But one of the things we talk about a lot is having our young people stay. Um, and so I know there's a big movement in Southwestern Virginia for especially young black folks to stay in the region. Um, as so many are leaving, so many of our young folks are leaving. How have y'all found the culture of leaving versus staying with regard to agriculture um, to be recently, especially in West Virginia? Well, we've been, I've been getting around. I did a lecture at West Virginia University. Um, I'm working with West Virginia State University, which happens to be an HBCU. Um, it's the one of the widest HBCUs in the, in the country. Uh, I need to add that. Um, we're also uh, one of the board members with Economic Development Greater East is uh, Dr. Crystal Cook Marshall. She's faculty at North Carolina A&T. So really trying to to leverage those, you know, organizations and their access to African-Americans and um, just kind of putting the information out there. So we're making progress in that way. Uh, I just returned from Ghana, West Africa myself, um, and really trying to also use that as a way to, to point people in this direction, because there's a lot that we could do 
in terms of partnership. But it, it, there's a lot of work and just really kind of showing the viability of what's here is a challenge. You know, people aren't going to pack up and come here if what we're saying is not legit. So right now, it's more of a matter of getting things in place and proving to people that this is for real. Um, and people are starting to take notice. We're starting, the more people that we get engaged, the better off we're going to be. Um, but it's very difficult when you're low income, you don't have money to make that move to get started. Uh, so working in the nonprofit world and trying to figure some things out to make that a, a smooth transition for people is something that we're working on as well. Um, but it's a tough sell, honestly. It's a very tough sell because when people think of this part of the country, again, they don't think of any opportunities that exist here. When you say agriculture, most people think of farming as well, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. When you say agriculture or agribusiness, that's a pretty wide spectrum of things that you can get involved in. In terms of the youth, We've started a youth organization and again, working with these universities at my last lecture, that was my point of emphasis is if I were a young college student looking for investment opportunities, looking to make a future, this would be one of the first places that I would consider. Um, when you go on top of these mountains and you look at what's going on here, it's incredible. It's beautiful. It's largely untouched. When you, as Josh mentioned, some of the reclaimed mine land, for example, uh, agriculture can play a role in cleaning that up uh, and in making use use of that land, whether it be housing development, because that's an area of opportunity. Right now, there's not enough housing in this area. Um, so we can take a lot of, of what we're talking about and turn those into opportunities, whether it be housing, tourism, agriculture, real estate. These are all areas, and, and honestly, right now, the tourism industry is being taken advantage of people that are not from here. So you'll have a guy, for example, there was a guy that came here from Ohio, I believe, brought his family here to do some four-wheeling, and they realized there's no place for us to go and grab anything to eat. So six months later, this guy shows back up and opens the place up. And so, and the people that are here are standing around looking like, well, you know, and I'm thinking, why aren't we doing these things? So there's a bunch of opportunities. I, I honestly don't believe that the growth, the expansion is going to happen with people that are here now. The largest demographic of people here are, are seniors. Uh, so it's going to take an influx of, of folks from the outside to come in here and really make this happen to the extent that it's, it's possible. Um, so youth, the youth component, working with universities, working with, with outreach with Together for Hope and just really doing things like this to, to get the word out there is, is what's happening. Um, so we're getting folks that are interested, but it's a tough sell. It really is. Absolutely. I can totally understand that. Well, I, I really appreciate both what you're doing and, and the message that you're trying to send and the momentous obstacle that you're trying to overcome because I think it's so important. And we really appreciate you all coming on the show and talking with us about this. I, I'm excited to try your all's products too. I guilty. I, I definitely ordered some of the Tennessee Jezebel sauce and some of the mama's meat sauce. And so I'm very excited to try both of those. Um, and we're happy to be sharing your all story and hopefully bring some more attention to the important work that you all are doing as much as we can. We'd love to help you all out. 
I think right now is just bringing the awareness and the conversation um, and showing exactly like, you know, what is the next, what is the next step? And, you know, that's kind of the encompass of what Appalachian Gold is trying to do. And, you know, if this business, business model is sustainable, you know, we can definitely look at places in the Delta, um, in the Black Belt, in the Rio Grande area. And so, you know, looking past our past and how it is a struggle, not only in the South, but also in Appalachia to accept, you know, what, what we're embarrassed by our history um, and how do we move forward and give people opportunity, especially air people in areas of rural poverty, um, that there is hope beyond just what they see in their surroundings. So that's, that's our main, main focus. And really to show that, you know, <laughs> there, there are black people still in Appalachia and it's a successful thing to, to, to embrace um, the diversity uh, amongst the region that people just think it's, uh, you know, people that have Mountain Dew mouth, overalls and no shoes. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, th- this is this is what we focus on on the show is dispelling those stereotypes that have kept us uh, under <laughs> under the boot of the rest of the country for so long. Um, I appreciate both of y'all's time. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, and I, yeah, I'm about to go on your website and order some as well. <laughs> But thank you so much. Thank you all very much. We've enjoyed our yeah. time. And like I said, just the awareness is the most important thing right now. So awesome. Absolutely. Well, great talking to you all. We'll talk soon. All right. Have thank a you good very one. Much. Take care. There might be some days that I don't think. Maybe some days I don't feel all right that was our interview let's get right into our under the radar which we've had a skip for a couple weeks but this one very important Callie, you brought this to all of us including myself um i was in florida i was pretty disconnected from social media in general so i have not been following a lot of what is happening uh in east palestine ohio but please fill us in well we can start there i believe that it is pronounced palestine and I've been trying my best to figure out um, the right way. I think it's Palestine. So super, super important events happening right there um, that we really want to raise awareness about. On February 4th, about 50 cars derailed in East Palestine as a train was carrying a variety of products from Madison, Illinois to Conway, Pennsylvania. So the route was Illinois to, to PA. Um the rail operator said that uh, that 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 was that was the original report. So no injuries to the crew or residents or first responders were first reported. That's on the fourth. Okay, so yesterday, which was the fifth, things started to get out of hand. So. Norfolk Southern, which is the train company, said that 20 of the more than 100 cars that were on the train, remember about 50 derailed, um, were carrying hazardous materials defined as cargo that could pose a kind of danger, quote, including flammables, combustibles or environmental risks, end quote. So. Here we have the situation where that we're in a township like there are people who live nearby. Um, 
they have uh, they have evacuated that we'll get to this, but they've evacuated about 3000 people, um, 50 cars derailed uh, out of 100 and 20 of them had hazardous materials. So of the 50 that derailed, 10 were the ones that were carrying those. So half of the hazardous materials were the ones that derailed. Um, and five of them were carrying vinyl chloride. Um, and so vinyl chloride is used to make polyvinyl chloride hard plastic resin in a variety of plastic products. And it's associated with an increased risk of liver cancer and other cancers, according to the federal government's National Cancer Center. And it's primarily used to make PVC. So if you have like PVC pipe, you ever made a potato gun? You can, I guess, think vinyl chloride for that. Yes. So at first it was just smoldering. The wreckage was just smoldering. Um, But some of this contaminated shit caught fire and last night late last night they the um the officials on the ground warned of quote the potential of a catastrophic tanker failure after a quote drastic temperature change was observed in that rail car and that's coming from the governor of ohio mike dewine um and so they the teams were working to make sure that people were safe and that was everybody's number one priority um but authorities evacuated everyone within a mile radius um and so they they at first this was not a mandatory evacuation um, and about 500 people declined to evacuate. But now they are literally arresting people if you don't evacuate um, because it is such a dangerous situation. So lots of things, lots of things bad happening there. But we really, really want to say that our our thoughts are with our Appalachian friends in East Palestine, in Southern Ohio, who are going to be dealing with not only potentially a major explosion that could rock their town, but an, a long-standing environmental disaster as well. Um, this is this is bad news on on many fronts. It's been a really long time since I've seen something this serious happen. So, growing up in Chemical Valley. Um, we had a lot of shelter in place. We've had a lot of uh, evacu. I don't want to say a lot, but we had evacuations before. And just like some of the communication coming out of like different governor's offices, I, I'm guessing that this is close to the Pennsylvania border because Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro issued a um, an order. The fact that they're doing a controlled release of vinyl chloride tells you how dangerous this is like the threat of an explosion is so dangerous they're doing a controlled release of this like carcinogenic uh gas and like what uh, the governor of pennsylvania said if you're in the they showed a map if you're in this red zone on this map you refuse to evacuate you're risking death this is very serious if you're in the orange area you're risking permanent lung damage like this is wild this is very serious and very scary and especially for the people in those communities who's having their lives disrupted and interrupted i mean i remember when um the there was a shell plant explosion like shell oil plant explosion near where i lived growing up and like i don't think we had to evacuate then we had to evacuate for some plant explosion we, we had to go away for like a day 
And I was too young to really appreciate the magnitude of that. But like when you have to leave your home because of a chemical spill, that's terrifying. It's one thing like if you have a hurricane, that's a natural disaster. Um, it causes damage, it goes away. But chemical spills are a different animal. And it's all man-made and it's wild. Yeah, and, and one of the things that is so scary about this is we do not know what the longstanding no. effects of this could be. We don't know if this chemical can get into the walls of people's homes and can be long term, can can ruin people's homes and their property values. Um, we don't know uh, currently. I mean, obviously, it's a scary thing to think about, but like the cancer rates are, are likely to go up in those areas. And this is a, you're right. It is a gas. So this controlled release is going to waft this gas along multiple states. And so this is going to eventually affect thousands and thousands of people, potentially millions if it goes over Pittsburgh. Um, and so this is like a very, very scary thing. And the fact that it is not on every network every yeah. minute of the day, it, it goes to to why this part of the country is so we lack so many resources. Like people are still covering that goddamn fucking balloon. <laughs> and People are dying. Like this is this is a a potential major disaster. And I saw I watched CNN for over an hour today and saw a tiny little subject mention. Um and that like that that makes me really sad and I really want more people to know and understand the risks that are involved in this. Honestly, I wouldn't have known about it if you hadn't tweeted from our account about it because this is something that is going to affect a lot of people. It already has. And uh, again, like you mentioned, we don't have a lot of information about the effects of vinyl chloride in the atmosphere and, and the, the air that we breathe. I'm sure that there's data on it. I'm sure that they'll put some stuff out like they know to some extent about it. But um, it's unclear at this point, at least for me, like how long it stays in the atmosphere, how long it's harmful in the atmosphere, how long the people need to evacuate. This disrupts people's lives. It forces them to find an alternate place to live with a lot of, of people who have a limited income. That's very difficult, especially if you don't have family members around you close. And even if you do, it's still difficult. So this is really like disruptive and you know, it's, it's tough. It's, it's horrible. And so, um, we're, uh, we're keeping this in our radar for sure. And the more that we learn, the more that we will share. Yeah, we'll continue to update you. Keep keep a track of our Twitter. Um, and and one thing that I just want to give a shout out to the firefighters, because fighting a chemical fire is a whole yeah. different thing than a house fire. And these folks are going to be, you know, the first responders on the scene who didn't know what was happening at the time and maybe breathe some of this stuff in are going to be dealing with this for years to come and uh so just want to say thank you to the emergency teams who are still like on the ground dealing with chemical fires that are absolutely fucking terrifying absolutely I, I echo that sentiment and if you are in or around this area you have more information or personal experience you want to share with us please like info at appodletcher.com or dm us on any social media platform we'll try to get back with you um this is something we take very seriously and we want to keep you all informed but also make sure that you know 
that at least we're keeping track of this. We're not we're not CNN, but uh, we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Thank you all for for listening. This is something uh, that is really shitty and sucks, but we got to cover it. We do. Sometimes we we gotta we gotta cover the shitty sucky stuff because you know last week we did Mothman erotica. Now we're doing this. So. Um, Mixed bag. Hitting stuff. <laughs> well, we'll be back next week, hopefully with with happier stuff. Maybe we'll see. We'll do a moonshine next week. So yeah, I definitely will be. Um, <laughs> thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. <laughs>